Thanks for downloading the Fantasy Animation Podcast, brought to you by fantasy-animation.org. If you enjoy these podcasts and would like to help us grow our audience, there are a few simple ways you can help. You can tell your friends about the show, either physically or online. Physically, well, hopefully you know how that works. Just um, tell people you know, get them to download the podcast, get them subscribing on various platforms. Online, you can like and retweet our posts on Twitter, share our posts on Facebook, and help us out in any other online platform that you work on. These seem like simple gestures, but they can be really, really influential in getting our word out, sharing our new content with our new listeners, and, and basically helping us grow. You can also give us a rating on iTunes um, and a quick star review, um, as well as if you are a uh, academic or someone with a bit of cash to burn, you can buy our book, Fantasy Animation Connections Between Media, Media and Genres, available on Amazon as well as other publishing platforms. Um, the book hovers around the 30 to £50 mark, so a little bit pricey for some, but if you do have the money out there or you're looking to buy new books for your library, um, it may, might make a great addition. Anything like that would help us grow the platform and continue doing what we love doing. But for now, enjoy the show. Let's say you're lost in a park, sure. You can give in to the dark, or you can trip a little light fantastic with me. Hello, listeners, and welcome back when to the Fantasy Animation Podcast. I'm, of course, Alex Sargent. And I am, of course, Chris Holliday. And uh, not only is it another episode, but it's a return, um, so to speak. And, and literally, we are revisiting uh, the world of Mary Poppins roughly about a year since we last yep. um, spoke about the original on the podcast. This which... is a first for us, then. This is the first to revisit something or, or to speak about a, a sequel, if you like, um, on the podcast. Absolutely. Exciting. This is our first sequel, um, and, and it was a pleasure to revisit it. It's a, a film that sort of conjured up lots of memories of the first one both deliberately um, and sort of implicitly I've got lots of things to think about in terms of the role of fantasy in the movie we spent a lot of time talking about that with the original and how the film both presents and sort of reflects on on fantasy so I'm very excited yeah I'm also very excited and for, for those reasons and other reasons um, uh, the role of animation in that sort of politics of citation I think but also issues of hybridity uh, and kind of compositing so things that the original did fantastically well um, I was really interested to, to sort of see animation's role within the idea of the, the remake, how this new sequel film gestures back to the original through the use of a particular kind of animated aesthetic. But luckily, it won't just be us two this time gassing on about the movie. Um, we have two very special guests with us on today's episode. We have um, Christian Kirstner, who is the VFX supervisor um, on Mary Poppins Returns. Kristen, uh, welcome to the podcast. Hello, welcome. Uh, and we have uh, Frederic uh, Gleach, who um, was the 2D compositing um, supervisor on the film as well. So, Frederic, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you very much. So this is really exciting for us because I'm, I'm, I sort of, I know I don't know the original film as well as as, as you, Alex, and so this is I get to kind of go in at this level on this film um, and get to get to sort of know some of the people and, and ask lots and lots of interesting questions about, uh, uh, I guess, the, the representation of uh, a particular kind of uh, world. We talked earlier about the world of Mary Poppins. Um, so yeah, I mean, I've got lots of things I want to ask um, both Christian and Frederic uh, about. Uh, animation about visual effects um, and their roles on the film yeah absolutely so i thought we why don't to get us started why don't the two of you um if you could just for our listeners sake and for our sake um we both got um, your job titles but could you just give us a little bit in layman's terms of what your roles were on the film um and uh, we'll take we'll take it from there well, as a 2D compositing supervisor, it was quite a different show to anything we'd ever done before. 
So the normal task where you would just be in dailies looking at shots, giving notes, um, it was it was a lot more work behind the scenes to make everything work in-house, but also because we worked with uh, a vendor outside of Framestore, we had to set up a pipeline, we had to do a lot of technical things and tech solve a lot of technical issues that we'd never experienced before. So the role was, was very big and very interesting and very um, developing for me and I guess everyone on the show. And so that was pretty much yeah, and, and for me as a visual effects supervisor, um, so we normally um, get called on by the clients to you know, support the shoots. Uh, so I was able to spend some time on set while filming. So we make sure that everything gets filmed the way we want to be filmed. And then we obviously collaborate um, with the uh, editorial and um, director's team and put, you know, uh, Matt was the um, client visual effects supervisor. So, you know, for our job is to just make sure that the director's vision gets translated correctly into visuals. Wow. So, and, and you mentioned Framestore. So both of you were working at Framestore um, and Framestore was one of a number of visual effects studios that were working as part of the film. Is that right? We were, um, yes, we were, we were the main vendor. Like we were yep. doing the bulk of the work. Uh, as Frederica said, there was a, um, the hand animated uh, work on the movie was done at a, in Los Angeles at a studio called Duncan Studios. And then there were um, some other vendors that were helping um, mostly on the technical side to deliver the, um, the show. Yeah. So, I mean, in terms of uh, your... I guess your arrival into the film. Um, how how did that sort of work? You were asked to work on particular. How does it work? Do you work on particular sequences, on particular um, kind of characters or backgrounds? Is it kind of character design based, character animation based, or is it um, largely kind of backgrounds? Because one of the things that the film does, um, or obviously one of the things that the original film did with regards to its set and its its production of, of London that looked kind of gloriously artificial. Uh, I think this this Mary Poppins Returns um, recreates London, London town that sort of sense of authenticity really really nicely um and so i wondered is your was your work sort of based largely around characters or was it largely um around building the world of mary poppins so actually i, I forgot to mention that cinecide was another big vendor that uh, was involved in in the movie and i want to give them the right credit um <laughs> but yeah so like it's you know it's like in any business you um you, you bid for the work, you, you do acquisition and you have uh, sort of talks with the, you know, with the, with the clients about what's best suited for us and then what's best suited for them and what they want to get out. And then, you know, it's, at the end of the day, it's, it's relationships and, um, you know, sort of figuring out what the best expertise is. In our case, we ended up doing actually quite a big mix of, um, what I'd like to call sort of supportive visual effects or invisible visual effects. Oh, I like that. I like that idea. Invisible visual effects. Oh, I like that. Well, you know, it's it's one of those things where you, you want you want the audience not to be taken out of the movie. You know, like it's, visual effects should support the story, and you know, there's to to various degrees they can be stylized, so they they're not necessarily always um, photographic. And you mentioned sort of establishing the 1930s, uh, industrial London. Yeah. Um, you know, that's something that you just, it's a big story point. You want the audience to be set up for the right mood. So 
at the same time, you don't want the audience to, to go, oh, there's a painting or there's a visual effect. You want the audience to just not worry about that. So that's why I said in visual, uh, invisible visual effects. I like the idea of kind of supportive, that it's not kind of detracting from uh, a particular kind of spectatorial position, but something like the recreation of London, the recreation of the South Bank um, is supportive and, and invisible insofar as it's not taking the audience out of the film. It's sort of... Uh, uh, allowing them, to, it functions as a sort of a gateway into the film. It seems. Yeah, it's it's the gateway into the theme, uh, the, the 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 movie, but also um, while setting up the mood, it needs to carry the audience through the whole film. So throughout the movie, there are um, establishing shots and setting up a world, supported by music or not. Yeah. But throughout the movie, there's you know a wide shot of a London like camera you know, tilting, tilting down, panning across, just to remind the audience, hey, this is, you know, this is 1930s uh, industrial London. And, uh, you know, we do that throughout the whole movie. We did a big sequence um, uh, at the beginning where we set up St. Paul's and, you know, that sort of mood. But at the same time, we, we did that for the um, big climb on Big Ben. Oh, that excellent. was also a crucial nighttime environment that we built. And then last but not least, we had, you know, the finale of the movie where we leave the audience sort of going from the fall time into a spring fair. And then, you know, the the big sort of uh, green trees, happy ending of Mary Poppins, really. Yeah, that's terrific. Those are my three favorite sequences of the movie. So I'm I'm set for the next hour or so. Um, uh, I wanted to talk about the beginning, actually, because I think um, going into the cinema, Big fan of the original, very trepidatious about whether the, the film would sort of live up to the hype, the, the um, you know, the memories of watching it, all this sort of um, vast emotional sort of um, baggage you've got going into the film. And what that opening sequence does um, is wonderfully sort of do something different, but do something the same in that you place the iconic location of Cherry Tree Lane within this wonderfully visualised sense of a, of a real London and I wondered if you could say a little bit more about sort of some of the design process behind that because to me I think what the film does very well is that a lot of the locations in the original Mary Poppins are sort of so fondly remembered but also so artificial and kind of charmingly artificial yeah Cherry Tree Lane looks like nowhere in London it looks like what it is which is a lovely design sound set and you guys somehow managed to both create that sound set again so that you feel like you're on cherry, cherry Tree Lane, whilst at the same time giving it a sort of a greater sense of realism, a greater sense of world building. So uh, could you talk a little bit more about so how you came about designing that and were you conscious of the idea that you need to make things look, you know, quote unquote real, whilst at the same time look like they were in a film where not a lot of it actually looks that real? Yes, I think we were very aware, and um, and for uh, clarification purposes, you know, Cinderside was in charge of the immediate surroundings uh -huh. of Cherry Tree Lane, of of the houses and the street. Right. So you guys we... had to sort of work with that and somehow blend it into a more sort of expansive cityscape. Yes. Yeah, so we we when the movie starts, you see you know Jack on mm -hmm. uh, you know putting out the lamps on the South Bank. So for us. Uh, it was, you know, it was always going to be a challenge. How do we live up to the original Mary Poppins? And it was, it was very well, very deeply discussed how we would do that and how we, you know, we even about the visual effects. We even discussed, oh, should we use some of the same techniques to be, you know, sh shoot with sodium vapor lamps and stuff like that, which at 
I think very quickly we came to the conclusion that it is not a remake of Mary Poppins. It is Mary Poppins Returns. Uh, time has passed and so has time passed in, in technology. So we wanted to keep the character and the charm, but but move it, use it with, you know, 2018 tools of visual effects. So uh, it was interesting, the process of designing the London. We actually got hand-painted artwork from Disney about the mood of the scenes that we had to sort of, um, you know, a, 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 some key storyboards. And then we we did some research. Uh, what did it? What did reality look like? And then we put the painting, which is you know it, it evokes an emotion and a reaction in the audience. And then you put photographs as much as you can of the 1930s next to it. And then you sort of okay, how can we make translate that mood into a photorealistic world? Um, so as you say, it's you know it's not supposed to be a photographic replica of of the South Bank. It's supposed to introduce the right emotion uh, into the audience when when you when you start the movie. Obviously, a lot of it is done by the music as well, mm-hmm. and the set design uh, from John Myers. And for us, it was a big challenge actually to just sort of you know reiterate about what is what what is art direction and what is photographicness and you know how do we build that bridge. It was um, very very interesting. And then luckily these days. Uh, with modern visual effects, you can iterate on that a little bit um, more efficiently in the sense that you can, you know, more easily move the sun around uh, and still, you know, just ha- have to re-render. You don't have to paint from scratch. But still, it's it's, it's still a very creative, um, iterative um, process with the director. Well, I think part of that creativity for me, the opening sort of five, ten minutes, seems to be this um, amalgam of different kinds of image-making technologies. So like the original, if I'm... If I remember rightly, you have those the oil paintings that function as the credits, which is sort of one way of uh, uh, or one form of representation. And then you have sets that are sort of, I guess, tangible three-dimensional sets um, where the actors are performing within. Presumably, I mean, I don't know, but there must have been a lot of blue and green screen at various points. There's obviously um, digital backgrounds, and then obviously, um, Frederica, your uh, this sort of kind of compositing. So I just wondered how where does um, kind of compositing fit into to all these sorts of image-making um, technologies that the film is kind of being built from? So much keying. So <laughs> much keying. So, <laughs> okay, what, so what does that, what does it, that it's mean? It's my job on the podcast to ask questions like this, which is, what is keying? <laughs> what is keying? So basically, it's just extracting a green screen or a blue screen from what they have shot on set in order to add a new background, add a character, um, Pretty much anything you see in fantasy movies will have had a green screen at some point, which a compositor has extracted and then animation provides um, a character and environment provides a background. And then the last link, which is compositing, will put it all together. To create a sort of a seamless, to to, to create the illusion that keying never took place in the first instance, that it was all done. Exactly, like it was shot that way the whole time. But uh, we all know that that is not the case. Well, this is true. Especially for Mary Poppins, um, most of the work we did for the London sequence was very, it's work we're used to doing, uh, doing the key and adding the mood and adding fog to create the feeling that it's morning and... It's very much creating something beautiful and, like Christian said, creating an emotion. 
for all the animation sequences. So we had three sequences at Framestore where we worked with the Duncan Studio in LA. Uh, they did all the animation hand-drawn and we would then put it together with what with live action that was shot on set. Um, and that was pure green screen. And because of the nature of the work, uh, it was the first to start and post, but the last to finish. Um, and why was that? It was because the keying was so difficult, all the costumes that the character have. So the first sequence in Royal Dalton Bowl, oh. they have very vibrant. Um, Sandy Powell made an effort in drawing in hand-drawn details to the clothes, which looks amazing in the end, but most of the colors were so difficult to key. So we had to rotoscope most shots and rotoscoping just means making a mat for each character in order to extract them from the green screen okay um and now i completely forgot the question no I, I was i'm just so about keying no no no. Um, well that was what the first question i asked when you and your answer was so much keying so so, <laughs> so i i, I buy hashtag so much keying. but it's but it's interesting that the well, the way that I suppose visual effects from my perspective works in terms of subtractive and additive, it takes things away or the digital has this ability to take things away, but it also has the ability to add things into the frame. So it can erase a wire, but it can add in a, a monster. And what's interesting in the way that both of you are talking, actually, we have invisible or supportive visual effects and then, there, and then your job, Frederica, which involves extracting. So there seems to be something that's, I don't know, it's it's... It's not downplaying it, but it's it's re it's removing things or making sure that our visual effects are invisible. And actually, what we're doing is just taking things out of something. Um, and and that's an interesting, I think, an interesting way of of, of thinking about visual effects. Given that you said that, um, or you you cited kind of fantasy movies, a lot of the sequences or a lot of the instances that you're describing um, are not spectacular monsters. They are adding in fog to create a sense of emotion. So there's some really it just seems like a different way of thinking about the role of visual effects in a film like this one, where sometimes you want the effects to be visualized and 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 want them to be noticed by the the audience. So the Royal Dalton sequence, where you could we could spend a whole podcast just talking about that sequence, um, and then other instances where you don't want the audience to enjoy the spectacle of the artificiality mm -hmm. of the effect. You want it. You want the the fog to to be exactly that, to be almost invisible and impenetrable, and just sort of there to create mood it's not jumping out at the screen it's kind of lying flat yeah absolutely and i think you know we we broadly you know when we gave you know when we talked about this movie previously we broadly always separated into the supporting visual effects work which is sort of environment work and just making sure that you know at, at no given point does the audience forget where we are but then we have um, what Freddie briefly touched on upon the animated world, which is, you know, the uh, the hand-drawn <clears throat> animation sequence, and then we have um, the Mary Poppins magic world, which is sort of under the ocean, above the ocean, and you know, flying in the sky. Um, all of which, you know, and, and I, you know, I always say, I've done my job well when you don't even think that we were there. Mm -hmm. I think that's sort of like I know, obviously, you know. The animated world and the magic world are obviously visuals of visual effects, but you don't want the audience to think about that. You want the audience to follow the story. And that's sort of, I think, one of the biggest challenges we always face is no matter if it's a Marvel movie or if it's if it's Mary Poppins or if it's, you know, uh, you know, talking animals, it, 
at no given point do you really want to uh, distract the audience. You want to always support the story. It's that word but that was also why the project was so exciting because we had all these different elements that we needed to, like we needed to use all the expertise we had, all the tools that we had. We needed to create more tools just to deliver the show because it had everything, everything from animation, supporting visual effects, and it just made it super exciting and very um, hard as well, um, but nevertheless amazing to work on. You've both mentioned the word emotion a couple of times in your answers, and I'm, I'm interested in that because um, a lot of the work in sort of fantasy scholarship um, tries to push back a little bit on this idea that, you know, what what we're all going for in a fantasy movie is to believe in the events on screen, right? Because if we all just wanted to believe in the events on screen, then they wouldn't be fantasies, they'd be, they'd be reality. Um, and there is some sort of strange interplay between belief and disbelief going on in our, in our experience of these films, because we don't believe in them, because if I believed that Mary Poppins was real, I would probably have to live my life very differently, because I'd be constantly worried about flying nannies falling on my head. Um, but but at the same time, so I have dreams to... right now. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, I have to sort of entertain it. And I think I, I like what you're saying about narrative, in that actually what you want is a narrative reaction, right? You don't want everyone to stare and go, isn't that a lovely, lovely rendered piece of special effects work? You want them to, to have a narrative of um, emotional experience so how do you how do you this is probably an impossible question but how do you uh through your craft try to get emotion into spaces and some spaces that aren't necessarily sort of that fabricated or that fantastical but a foggy london cityscape how does one try to project a sense of emotion or narrative into a space when you're rendering it through a computer um, I think that goes back to the um, what I talked about originally. We got actual paintings, and you know, a lot of a lot of work before we do our visual effects work, whether we do it ourselves um, or the client does it, is concept artwork, and it's 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 sometimes it's actually painted on with paints and oil paints, or sometimes it's you know done on the computer, but it's it's that every human being. Um, unless you're com completely emotionless, you will have a reaction to a, an image that you see. And that sort of, that works best with overdoing it a little bit and or abstracting it even more in terms of an oil painting. So you, you look at that oil painting and you sort of, oh, I understand exactly what the artist wanted to express with this by the, choose, by the, by the choice of colors, uh, the, the palette, um, you know, the, the ranges and the time of day. So for us to, as I said earlier, we, we then do some actual photographic reference and then sometimes you come across, oh, this looks very similar to the mood. It's, it's not looking at um, Big Ben or it's not looking at the South Bank or Tower Bridge, but it is in London and it has the same sort of mood. So we can then try and translate that into how we light our environments and how much fog we put in and what's what's that you know oh i really like how the the, the fog dissipates here or you know how the fog moves you like yes there's always animated character but even an environment can become a character you can have you know you can have lots of wind you can have a calm thames you can have fog moving or you can have fog static so all those things you need to think about and uh, you know sort of art direct and translate into into the visuals and the trick is to sort of make it seem photorealist but has an element of subjectivity i guess to it it's it's an image that's been created by someone rather than just an image of the world 
Exactly. So you don't want to like necessarily like if you want to, and I think that goes back to you, like to you're saying like, well, you know, you know, believability, or you want you want your audience to be immersed. I think fundamentally, movies are supposed to give you a space to leave reality, and mm-hmm. I think there's something about it that. Um, you know, I, I, I'm a big fan of new technologies and everything, but, you know, 4K, 60 frames a second is great for documentaries and, and for sports. But if you get into that sort of... Um, I actually had the, the pleasure a few years ago to watch uh, James Cameron's 200 frames a second stereo, and all of a sudden it becomes so realistic that it, it's more like a theater piece than a movie. And there's something about the two-dimensionality of it at 24 frames a second that gives you that space like I don't have to worry about reality it gives me a place to escape and particularly a movie like Mary Poppins obviously is supposed to give you that you know uh, fantasy world of escape of you know it's dealing with so many difficult subjects in such a upbeat way that it's you know that it's it's good for the audience to be there and so as, as a visual effects artist we want to support that but not put like not rip you out of it but it seems that the obviously the film itself within the dialogue is very explicit about the role of if we're talking narratively the role of imagination and you have lines about you know the children let him believe what he likes there's talk of an excessive imagination if it doesn't make sense it can't be true give in to the imagination all these sorts of things um but one of the what i i suppose in the way that you're talking about fantasy worlds and and the way that we build a coherent, authentic community of London town is that there are obviously different worlds or there is the the, the world, the real world, if you like, of of London that is um, where the film takes us first and foremost and then there are offshoot fantasy worlds, i.e. the bathtub sequence um, and then presumably later on, uh, obviously, with the Royal Dalton sequence as well. So we go into these subworlds and then return yeah. back into the main world. Um, but of course, the fantasy or the unrealistic elements aren't just left to those worlds. They do intrude and bleed into the real world, where you know you have the characters even at the very, very end, where they're all floating away, and everyone just assumes that that's normal that floating in the sky with balloons is like a thing that you do at a fair apparently yeah. um, uh, is it also, not? <laughs> well you know <laughs> um, but also the role of Mary Poppins herself as this fantastical intrusion and, and there's lots of dialogue between the um, Michael and Jane about those things that happened to us when we were younger they weren't they weren't real were they and then there's that beautiful moment where she sl- Mary Poppins slides up the banisters in the background um, and so actually I suppose if you're in your role of of fog in london you you don't want as and as part of that invisible visual effects you don't want london as a space to be too fantastical because that would presumably dilute the impact of the other fantasy sequences there needs to be a, a sort of level of equilibrium or a level of fictional reality that we can anchor into other otherwise the the children's journeys into the um, bathtub and under the sea and then into the Royal Dalton um, vase would seem less... They they would be equally as fictional and fantastical as the world from which they were leaving. So there needs to be a register of fantasy, presumably. Absolutely. And I think it's one of the the things where you you use art direction to really contrast that as well, where you you have very different... 
palettes in terms of you know tonality like everything was dark and gloomy to be to begin with whereas the first time the bathtub sequence you know like you're like mm. hooray there's a fireworks of colors and uh, it's everything is, is bright and colorful yeah. and saturated and yes you want to use these you know tools these artistic you know visual effects in a way that um you know you can you can support and contrast um, the story points and yes you do want that to be as photorealistic as you can but to get the mood across as you know the way you want it and you know to a certain degree the composition i think one of the examples that i that we always had there was we did some concept artwork which you know we adhere to perspective and everything but you know cheated a little bit here and there just for composition and then we went in and built it correctly and at some point the bridge and the water level in the real, like in the realistic London, changed, and the director said, "No, no, no. What, what's that? Why, why did the water level change? You know, like." And it was like, "Well, that's you know, that's how it is. Like, no, but I like the composition of 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 mm. the concept art. So, those are the things where then the director is able to guide us in his vision, really." Okay, I just want to pause the podcast for a second there, Chris, because I want to talk about social media. What is social media and how can we use it? Social media is an online platform where people get together to discuss, debate and never shout at one another. But the purposes of fantasy animation, it's a really important device for us to help grow our audience. I know a like and a retweet seem a bit cumbersome and they seem like they're not a big deal, but taking five seconds out of your day to do that with our posts can really help us spread our visibility. Facebook and Twitter are like standing on street corners with a megaphone, shouting at people. We are the local crazy person, and we need your help to give us a bigger megaphone. Or, if you own an actual megaphone, find a street corner and do it yourself. On that note, like, share, or retweet our most recent post, and write below a comment, a bit of feedback, or a suggestion as to where you think we might go next. Then go back and find another post and do the same. We'll give you five seconds, and then we'll get back to the show. I've got I've got a question maybe for, for for both of you. Were you fans of the original? Because obviously, when you're working on a film that is so connected, as Alex said right at the start, to to a film that is so beloved, certainly, well, within fantasy cinema and also from an animation perspective, its use of its sort of pioneering use of compositing and having characters dance with animated characters, which obviously this new film does does as well, and and sort of extends it and and um, really plays with that that compositing that hybridity between live action and, and animation um were you both yes. fans of the original did you love the original did you consciously you know you hear a lot of a lot of people i think when they're working on a film like this where they didn't watch the original because they didn't want to be influenced and all these sorts of things so what was your relationship to the original like and did you bring that to bear on your work on the on the sequel yes for me i definitely was a fan um i think like before i decided i wanted to be in visual effects mary poppins and uh, Peach Dragon <laughs> was the two first movies I saw with live action and and 2D characters, and I was blown away. Um, so hearing that we were going to do Mary Poppins is both terrifying. <laughs> like Christian said, you want to pay respect to the old movies, but you still want to show something new and something more evolved. Um, for Just as an example, for the music hall sequence, a lot of the decisions we made with the shadow on the 2D characters not being affected by... So the 2D characters wouldn't be affected by the spotlight, meaning that when they went in and out of the spotlight, you wouldn't see a shadow going over them. Mm. Um, and in normal visual effects, obviously we would put that because that's photoreal. That's how it should look. But we didn't 
do it in the end because we wanted to pay respect to how they did it back in the day. So back in the day, they wouldn't put shadow on because it would be too expensive to paint it. Mm. Um, so those small decisions were super conscious and um, part of the whole process throughout the whole movie to pay respect and the vision and Rob Marshall being a musical director, he was very clear on what he wanted. He wanted everything to look good mm. in camera. Um, and if that meant that we had to cheat and move Big Ben in order to get it in the frame, even though it's not correct, that's what we would do. So, yeah, it was it was very exciting to work on it and definitely one of my like bigger films that made me go into visual effects. Excellent. What about you, Christian? Yeah, likewise. Obviously, um, when you you know, get into visual effects. And I don't think there's any way around Mary Poppins about it. You know, it was it was groundbreaking at the time to use the sodium vapor lamps and to the, to introduce that technique of hand-drawn combining with some live action. So uh, the, from a, you know, professional background point of view, it was always something that you had to come across and had to, mm -hmm. you know, um, sort of study. Uh, but at the same time, you know, before I, similarly to Freddie, before I, I went to visual effects, it's one of the movies that was really fun as a child to watch. And, you know, the songs were, you know, the lyrics and, uh, you know, going super califragilistic, sex <laughs> um, Perfect. Perfect. Can't do that. Perfect. <laughs> Don't make me do it backwards. Um, uh, okay. Yeah, okay. But, you know, as a child, I had the record, you know, like I was playing it on my record player. And uh, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a huge influence at the time. Here's a fun fact. Christian was still sing like doing dailies because he knew all the songs. Excellent. Excellent. I'm not going to watch the original songs or the, or the new songs. Or the, the new, new songs. ones. Oh, cool, yeah. cool, cool, cool. Because so there is that musicality. Give us one. <laughs> on the spot. No. no, we won't make you sing right now, um, but, but perhaps later when we've, uh, when we've like, warmed we up. We can be the fade out, the kind of closing <laughs> credits to the podcast can be you giving us a rendition of a number. I'd like to talk about, uh, I think we spent enough time in foggy London, um, both literally and, and, and metaphorically. Um, I'd like to talk about the, 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 the musical sequence and the, and the sort of protracted 20-minute, um, well, animated, for want of a better word, sequence. Um, first of all, could you just clarify, I'm, I think you said this near the beginning, but what, what role did you guys play on it? You said that the actual animation was done um, in L.A., so what, what were you adding to that um, sequence? So I can talk about this for a good hour. But see if Excellent. I can Better settle in then. Um. Um, so basically we would get all the sequences. We would turn them into shots and then we would start treating all the shots. So we would do all the camera track. We would do the distortion. Uh, we would do a rough key, meaning that we would do a rough uh, rotor or a mat of the characters. Um, and we would then create a script for each shot that we could send to Duncan Studio so they could start using that to hand-draw the animation uh, and use that as reference. So we would have something called registration marks, which would be um, four corners of each shot. So they would pin that down to make sure that each frame was correct when they're painting, so it's in the right space. Super hard to explain just yeah. without images. I'm going to need about an hour yeah. to unpack that, I'm afraid. Just, let's just go back to the first bit of the sentence. So you, you said you take you take the frames and turn them into shots? The sequences. The sequences and turn them into the shots. The sequences, yes. Yeah, so yeah, We've got a long way to go in this sentence. Let's start with that. <laughs> what, what does that mean? <laughs> the whole mean? Royal Bolton is one sequence. Uh -huh. And then you have the music hall, which is another sequence. And you have chase, which is the third sequence. Okay. And each sequence has shots. 
So each time you see the camera changing, uh -huh, uh -huh. it's a new shot. So what, what are you doing to turn them into shots? Sorry, you're, you're, you're storyboarding them. This is before it's all been... That's animated. the whole pipeline. So we get it from the client. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's basically the, the, the client editorial will, will set up the edit and um, each, each cut um, will then mean that's a new shot for us. Um, and as Freddie said, there's the three sequences. The, the first one, is the, which is the Royal Dalton Ball, which is mainly done by um, Duncan Studios. So all the background and all the animation is done. Like we provided um, the, 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 the mats and the registrations for the frames. And then the music hall and the chase, we were a bit more involved in, in that. Okay. Um, so I, I, I'm the Luddite on this podcast, so I'm still, I'm still back at... So you're getting the live action footage from the, from, from the studio. You're breaking that down into shots because they're all going to need various visual work done on them. Um, yeah. and, th and then go, go from there again because I'm still, I'm still at that point and, and, uh, and, I'm, and I'm lost what happens after that. Then, then it's your job to sort of work out um, what effects are required in each shot. No, so each shot will already have a brief from the client what they want uh -huh. in it. Um, and obviously Duncan Studio would have their brief with the client uh, and the client would work with them and say, I want the tree to be to the left and I want the horse to be in this shot and not in this shot. So that would be their brief. Cool. Uh, and they would work on all the animation and then provide us with their finished work. And okay. we would then integrate that with the live action. So what, did, what does that involve, integrating it with the live action? I reckon that isn't simple. So normally <laughs> integrating on our end is that we would do the key and then we would do anything to make it look pretty and all the edges and create light wrap to sit it in right. Like okay. all the colors in the background and the foreground have to be the same. Like if the foreground is filmed very uh, warm and in sunlight and in the morning, if the background is in the evening, you have to adjust that to make it look like it's in the same world so right. to say but because of the animation sequence being so specific uh, Duncan Studio would already have an approved background meaning that we could not touch it at all so all the keying all the light wrap um, like we couldn't do any light wrap we couldn't change anything in the foreground it just had to be a perfect key and that was why the whole sequence was so long to work on because it was just a lot of work to make it look perfect basically wow how, how long are we talking we're talking that it was the first shot to be started <laughs> back in yeah february 2000 to finish and then with the music hall, like Christian said, we had to do a bit more in-house just because of the nature of the work. It couldn't be completely hand-drawn because uh, it had so many spotlights and just a lot of technical issues that would be too hard to paint. Uh, and therefore, we went with a 2D mixed with a 3D solution. Um, so for us, we did uh, the environment in-house in full 3D, but using all of Duncan Studios textured uh, artwork, yeah. artwork. So, so what you see in the music hall, all the textures on the books are coming from Duncan Studios. So it is 2D, but it's added on a 3D 
surf surface that we did in house in order to create the golden reflections and all the spotlights being affected on the books and so yeah it was it was it was a lot <laughs> I, I remember when we when we uh, chris and i chatted about the film when we first saw it sort of when it came out last year that i remember reflecting that that the choice to sort of have them go into a piece of um crockery was was inspired because the whole thing therefore is like the original but with again with this sort of sense of of what the technology and, and what's available to us because the whole thing is flat but not flat right it's all curved yeah. and shaped and things like that and, and what you're saying here is that you're, you you that's what you spent a lot of your time doing trying to add those tiny little touches that perhaps I, I probably couldn't even pick out right here now as one example but that just give this feel that what you're lo looking at isn't an oil painting which it was in the original movie but paintings <laughs> on a sh curved 3d space yes Okay. Yes, and that was a lot of back and forth to make that work. And also because the artwork coming from Duncan Studio was so amazing and we wanted to use that. So we ended up using all of it, but just adding a bit of dimension to not make it look too flat. Could you give us like one example of, of a particularly difficult shot or something that that you had to play with just to help listeners. Take your pick. I was no. going to say all of it, yeah. all of it, um, an hour and a half. <laughs> uh, um, no, I think, you know, going back to the to the, the, the three sequences, I think one of the the very difficult things uh, on all, like on all sequences was the integration and one, the Royal Dalton Ball when we are with the, with the trees and the horse and the carriage, you know, as Freddie said, normally you would see what was done on the lighting on the live action characters on set and then we would just you know, try and replicate it in the background and put the sun in, in the right spot and all those sort of things. This wasn't, it wasn't possible here because the, the background was drawn. So we would, you know, have a lighting direction from, from, from the drawn background, but it was a, a lot more work for us to integrate um, the live action characters into that environment. The music hall that, you know, the, the stage performance uh, where, where they're dancing on the books, that was, I think, you know, not so much like that it couldn't be done in 2D. It's just what Rob had in mind as a, as a stage performance wasn't translatable into a 2D world. So he wanted it, you know, for the the gold reflections to lightly crawl over the books when the camera was moving. And one thing that, you know, I think that goes back to the original question, like how do we pay homage to, you know, the original we, we sort of we pick up some of the same techniques, but we do lift it into 2018 at the time and say, okay, well, here are the things that we can add on that we couldn't do in 1964, for example. And, you know, moving cameras was, was some, something that, you know, Rob was free to, as a, as a Broadway director, was free to choreograph, uh, choreograph his, his camera and, and moves um, during the performance, which meant that we can replicate that. And we, um, Rob was able to get that look um, that he wanted for for the performance, and similar to the the chase through the forest, that was stylistically or art direction wise actually quite challenging because we wanted to sort of keep traditional 2D um, techniques like forced perspective and you know trying to move things on on uh, on cards rather than actually having three-dimensional trees so we didn't want that sequence to be uh, like a sequence from you know from up or you know a toy story or something mm -hmm. it wasn't supposed to be a really good 
3D cartoon. Mm. It was supposed to be a, like an homage to the original um, cartoon and hand-drawn work. So all the characters, and that's what Freddie was saying earlier, the penguins and the wolf and the badger, all the characters are done by Duncan Studios and just integrated into a sort of 3D world. So we, for it's example, just the environment. yeah, for example, the, the, you know, the stage, the books were three-dimensional. So, um, Mary and Jack could move around, uh, with the live action as, as, you know, Rob wanted them to. And, uh, the, you know, the chase sequence, the children were in a, in a physical card and a green screen, which then was replaced by a full 3D model of that card, which had 2D textures on it. But all the characters were only two-dimensional and had to be placed correctly in space. So it was it was really really challenging. As you know, as Freddie says, it's sort of really hard to um, to to describe without visuals. But um, um, it was it was a lot of fun to to get yeah. your head around this. Mm. In in the original um, podcast we did on the on the on the first movie, we talked about the animated sequence and the phrase we hit on that we've used quite a few times since is the magic of that sequence is is the hybridity of live action and um, cell animation creates an effect almost akin to like oil and water, whereby mm-hmm. the pleasure is that they can't mix and they won't mix, and yet mm. the the skill is like you know spinning, uh, stirring it, stirring it, stirring it in the cup, and watching the sort of shapes and and the collisions emerge out of it. And it sounds like all the work you guys are doing is to kind of create that those collisions. It's to create a sense that these two things are, if they're not. Um, meshing together they're colliding together in the frames so that people can see there is 2d there is live action and somehow they are in the same space even though they shouldn't be and that's the fantasy yeah exactly and then you know i think the best example that freddie gave was that it was a conscious decision to not affect the penguins by the spotlights whereas you know mary and jack would go in and out of spotlights and you can see the you know the the, the half the half circles crawling over them when you know over the books and everything but the the 2d characters were sort of there and they would cast a shadow but not be affected by the spotlight so that was you know we did many tests on what that should look like and you know we actually did a test of integrating the the 2d characters completely and having them affected it was a very different look and then rob decided that's not what i had envisioned you know it's fascinating but it seems like obviously this kind of on that note, talking about inter- we've used com- uh, compositing, but also integration as well, um, and that's sort of you're trying to place the film as a film that is set in 20 or uh, that is sorry released in 2018, whilst at the same time paying homage to that sort of artificiality um, or that artificial element, and so you're there's a kind of rejection, as you say, of the kind of CGI that will be used in a film like Toy Story or in a film like Up that plays with depth and dimension and perspective and volume um, with a sort of, I don't know, a, a kind of tucking it away or sort of playing with visual effects take on, or certainly digital visual effects take on, um, kind of take on new meanings where you are playing with, I suppose on the one hand, digital technology, whilst at the same time, given um, Ken Duncan's relationship to Disney, this and Disney, there's Disney Studios, that these are characters, certainly in the case of the um, um, both Royal Dalton and the musical sequences, that these are. And I remember us talking about this when we did the when we talked about the original film, Alex, the the kind of classic Disney style. That these are, for me, the characters felt like they were drawn at the time that the film is set around the 30s and the 40s that that that's the aesthetic that i i was getting from the characters themselves they were looking like characters that weren't going to be 
uh, appearing in the Toy Story film anytime soon, but they were very much of the period. And and so you're, and I guess my, the question at the end of all of this is that are you, the way that you've been talking about the film and, and its effects, um, my, I guess my question is, it, it feels like you're just animators. Like your your the way that you describe your work um, is is and this is maybe where the line between visual effects and animation is a little bit blurred. So I just wondered whether you could speak. Do you see yourself as effects artists who who engage with animation? Are you animators that do effects? I, I guess I'm just interested in that in that um, kind of in, industrial boundary between those two areas. Well, uh, I think you know I would I would almost say visual effects, um, as I said at the beginning can and should always be a character and you know even if it's a, it's a supportive character so do i consider myself as an animator no i always have an animation you know supervisor that, right. that you know advises me on, on how we you know how, how certain you know specific characters need need to move and uh, but it, in the grand scheme of things especially in the case of mary poppins I think it's a prime example of highly art-directed visual effects. Even though, you know, even the London stuff that was supposed to be as photorealistic as possible, it needed to create a world. It was a, it was sort of in a hybrid between fantasy and real realistic because it wasn't, it it wasn't 100% photoreal. That's that's for sure, and that wasn't also the the goal. It was trying to translate Peter Allen Shaw's paintings from the time into something modern um, which gave you a similar emotion and uh, at the same time uh, everything that we do it has to support the character and the storytelling so yes i think you're to a certain degree you're right i think we're we're you know animators in the grand scheme of things to in order to say we yes our visual effect all the work that we do is is you know characteristic and has a character um but you know like i think frederick and i would not consider ourselves animators no because that's a skill <laughs> because you don't deal with characters am i right in here is that the distinction no because we, we don't really like we don't like for me for me it's more art direction if you if you will which you know maybe entails a little bit um you know for me the the whole movie making process is, is a collaborative between many many part uh, departments, departments yeah. and and many many very very skilled people and you know the to a certain degree, the choice of from Sandy Powell's costume design influenced how you know some of the animation had to be done, just because it was portraying a specific style. And John Myers' set design of the partial sets of the South Bank influenced by the oil painting from the concept art influenced how we executed it. So it's it's really hard to sort of um, de define the, the roles on filmmaking as you know as, as global you know like a visual effects as animators, but I think. If you consider visual effects as storytellers, I think that's sort of probably more where we want to yeah. be. So we're, we're getting close to running out of time here, but I, I feel I'm going to kick myself for a good week if I don't ask you at least a question about the final sort of couple of sequences of the movie. So um, you mentioned that you worked quite heavily on, on the sort of the Big Ben climax as well as uh, the, the balloon. Uh, I don't know, what's, what's after a climax? Uh, 
perhaps that's for another time and another audience. Um, but uh, um, <laughs> not certainly not anti-climax. Yes, but yeah, but, but the, the balloon bit as well. Um, so I don't know, as as a sort of uh, as a way of of wrapping up our our time with Mary Poppins here. Um, is there anything from either of those sequences that you two sort of are especially proud of, or that you think you've taken on into future work, or a little moment that perhaps viewers can watch back the film and go, yes, that's because of us, and we're really pleased it's there. The film wouldn't be the same without it. I think the big, the big Ben climbing sequence is another uh, prime example of supporting visual effects or enhancing visual effects because the the main point w- was there that you know, in order to turn back time, Jack needed to climb up and you know get the help from all his uh, um, Learys and, and climb up Big Ben, but obviously, for us it was to enhance the danger of, of that. So we had partial set builds um, of, of the Big Ben surface. So some of it, you know, some of, some of it is is uh, in in camera and, you know, on set. But most of it, wherever we see big depth or the danger or, you know, when he walks out to the, just before he jumps onto the, the clock wall, that's obviously, you know, that's us where, you know, we we have the ability to enhance and t- tell the story of, you know, get the audience and the children on the edge of their seat. My God, he's going to fall mm-hmm. uh, because it's so dangerous. And again, there is it's the whole, you know, do the do the trees have wind? Is there, are the leaves blowing around? Is, is the fog moving? All those those questions that you have to ask yourself because we, we used it quite quite wisely um, to, you know, just get enough light onto the trees that you could see they were moving and, you know, think it was actually quite windy up there, so it's even more dangerous. So I think that's um, one of the, you know, on that sequence that was so really exciting and, and really, really cool to, to figure out. And, you know, all of that was partial set, so, you know, I would say, in the, in the grand scheme of things, 25% was set. Obviously, the the, the, the characters and the and, and the lyrics were, were all real, with the exception for a couple of wide shots where we, we see digital lyrics. And in contrast to that, the up in the air sequence where everyone's on the, hanging on a balloon, that is, you know, it's your Broadway finale, everyone yeah. on stage, and yeah. it was um, very, very highly cho- choreographed. Um, everything had to be done to the music. The people had to be in the right spot at the right time. You know, um, you know. Rob was saying, like when when I was on set, he was like, "You're gonna have a hard time working with five, six, seven, eight. You know, like like the musical director. He was gonna like everything had to be you know time. There wasn't there wasn't you know too much room on our side for creative." animation i would say in choreography because it was his his child and you know it was his 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 vision that he wanted to translate and timing that's really interesting that you are kind of working with the beats of the film musically so you are the the way that the film and the i suppose the edit you talked about editing before but as you say it's the climax to the film that is a musical fantasy and and you are your role as the artist is to do things like play with um, a certain kind of narrative drama that surrounds Big Ben so that you create or you mitigate the fantasy with jeopardy. You create narrative jeopardy whilst at the same time uh, working to construct a sequence that is entirely fantasy. Whilst in this final sequence you are you are creating a uh, yeah a kind of a musical climax and using visual effects to um, yeah tap into the the, the rhythm of the ending or something like that the way that you talked about 
editing and 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 the fact that this is a kind of closing musical number the role of effects being integrated not just at the level of the shot but being integrated with other areas of the film sound and editing and things like that it's actually it's actually quite interesting and uh aspect of making a musical one one thing that can trip us up very very easily um in visual effects if, if the edit changes so you know like it sometimes surprise you know, like, it's oh, changed just <laughs> added 24 frames on this like well we haven't you know we, have, we don't have those frames like yeah. like it's not as easy and in this case it because it was a musical and there was a lot of musical numbers it was very early on that the edit was pretty locked yeah. because it was you know the, the 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 music was driving when to cut and how long to stay on each shot so that was actually a blessing uh, for us and at, at, at this stage and i, I want to go back to maybe one fun fun fact that probably no one will ever sort of know and understand how hard that oh, was we, li- we like facts Emily. like this we like facts like this the underwater sequence for us it was like what is that going to be because you know there was the option do we just keep their faces and do everything, the costumes simulated, the hair, un- the hair everything underwater simulated, um, or it like, you know, what, what's the style of that sequence? And it turned out that um, Rob was very keen as, you know, as being a, a stage director to just inherit all the performance of the children and, and Mary. And, but we wanted to still enhance the sense of under fluidity and underwater. And then, you know, we, just throw out there or we'll just shoot it at 48 frames a second and you know play it back and everything will be a little bit slow-mo and will be just fine but it turned out obviously that mary had to had to sing and yeah. we had to had to sing the song so uh, when we told her that she um should sing at 48 twice the speed um she just had a big laugh and <laughs> <laughs> because it was you know she needed to lip sync and the, it was just impossible to sing at uh, 48 frames a second so we ended up shooting at 30 frames a second, which is just slightly overcranked, um, which gave the costumes just the edge of being a little bit floaty, and it was it was a speed that uh, Emily was able to 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 sing at that pace. Um, but it was a huge challenge for her because it was also a huge challenge for for Rob because as he was filming, everything was playing in the right pitch but slightly too fast. Mm-hmm. And then at some point, like he 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 came back to 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 Matt uh, um, Matt Johnson, the visual effects supervisor, and, and I, and said, I don't know how you guys did it, but it seems to work. <laughs> I, I'm trying to calculate the amount of money I'd be willing to give to see the raw footage of Emily Blunt singing a slightly fast frame rate whilst at the uh, whilst you know the lack of it, that that that's got to be a set a couple of um interesting days on set that's that's really fascinating i didn't know that. It, it was really hard and, and you know at the same time um it was challenging for the you know the music department as well um or the sound department because they needed to play that back in the right pitch <laughs> because you couldn't just play it um chipmunk style you know yeah that's a yeah. that's a very different movie that would well yeah absolutely, absolutely. um I, I just actually have one final question for, for frederico in terms of the thing that she's perhaps is there a moment on the film that she's particularly proud of given that you said that there was so much keying keying so much keying. is there a particular bit in 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 mary poppins returns that you that you will look back on fondly keying maybe in keying aside or including the key <laughs> i don't or? think it's keying no <laughs> um i mainly worked on the three animation sequences um which 
in the end, I'm very, very fond of and very proud of just because of the technical challenges that we had to face. And without getting too technical, it was it was quite um, teamwork between compositing and our TD Britain and pipeline in order to create tools that meant that we could deliver over 100 shots uh, in about a week. Uh, using two people, uh, which is unheard of. Like normally you would sit and you would have to open each shot and create something in order to deliver a, a work in progress to the client. Yeah. And by putting all of these amazing heads together, we were able to create tools that actually worked for us with just, we were able to do one shot and then run that script through all shots in the sequence and get a rough sense of how it was going to look in the end. And we've never done that type of tool before. And it's definitely something we want to try to use in other films just because it's so much work and, and time wasted if we didn't yeah. try to evolve those kind of tools. Um, so I'm very, very proud of the backstage part of the movie as well yeah, as the finished result. <laughs> absolutely. Well, I, I, thinking about where those those sequences, those animated sequences come in the film and, and perhaps tying in together the issue of narrative and world building that we, we began the podcast with. It's it's interesting that those three animated sequences that come pretty close together, there's a lot there's a lot riding on those sequences visually in terms of what you talked about, uh, integration and compositing, but also narratively, you know, these are it sort of comes relatively in the middle of the of the film and it's where um, I guess the, the children are first aware of uh, Colin Firth's character's duplicity because of that doubling. The characters in the real world are played, or they play animated characters in the, the Royal Daughter musical sequence. Um, it's Probably also need to get our obligatory Wizard of Oz reference yep. of the week in there at that point. Doubling, <laughs> that's why I did it. There you go. Um, but also those animated sequences, they're kind of dramatic. They involve chase chase sequences, display, exhibition, their musical numbers. Um, we get Jack going on a journey with with Mary. He joins her on the uh, her and the children as they go into the into the side of the bowl. Um, so there's lots. I feel like there's lots going on in those sequences beyond the visual side, and actually, visually they are they are striking and, and incredible and wonderful. But also narratively, there's a lot that needs to happen in those sequences to then set up the next part of the movie. So beyond the way that these these um, animated sequences look, I think narratively and in terms of building the world, there's there's a lot more there's a lot more going on that is successful in those those moments. So I'm I'm glad that you picked up those those sequences. Personally, <laughs> oh, thank you very much. Yeah. Okay, um, you might not be able to tell us, but what what are you guys working on now? Are you in the midst of take of doing some more keying, or uh, uh... have you left keying behind? Are you allowed? Yeah, are you allowed to tell us? Is this secret? Can you text it to us afterwards, and we'll keep it under our under wraps? No, actually, I I just um, um, I just wrapped up um, a movie for Tom Harper. It's called The Aeronauts. Which right. will premiere soon. Uh, I think we'll be seeing it a couple of festivals, a Toronto Film Festival. Um, but uh, yeah, I literally just wrapped it up yesterday, so oh, wow, it's wow. my first day that I'm without a project. So I'm oh. not going to put my hand up for anything else in the moment, sure. <laughs> apart from a podcast with us, of course. And Frederica, any anything that you you're working on at the moment that you can tell us about? I just had a baby, or like a okay. year ago, so I'm still on maternity leave. Oh, so terrific. I'm just flapping about. Oh, great! Well, that's much. That's yeah. Much, but that's I'll much I'll be back very soon, and to do I'll some be more doing key. Tom and Jerry. Oh wow! That's, that's uh, which is kind of similar to Mary Poppins. It will be a mix of live action and animation, but 
we'll do all the animation in-house. So it wow. should be a very, very exciting project. Well, we'll get okay. you back on for that then. So stay tuned. Yeah, absolutely we will. Um, <laughs> terrific. Are you guys on social media at all? If any budding animators out there want to sort of follow you and, and um, get some snapshots into the world of, of professional uh, VFX. Uh, well, Framestore has an Instagram account. Yeah. Yeah, it's on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. It's just uh, slash Framestore. Slash Framestore. Okay. Yeah. Terrific. You guys should follow that if, if, if interested in more. Uh, guys, yes. thanks very much for joining us on the podcast. It's been a real pleasure to chat to you about all things Mary Poppins. Thank you so much for having us. Yes, thank you for for your time and thank you for having us. Thank you. Yeah. This episode was uh, produced by Joe Tyler uh, in collaboration with Bournemouth University. So thank you very much for hosting us and and che checking that we all sound as as sexy Crisp as possible. And clean as possible. Yes. <laughs> um, this has been Fantasy Animation. You can find us at fantasy-animation.org on Twitter at fananimresearch, F-A-N-A-N-I-M research, and of course on Facebook. Um, but for now, uh, that's us journeying off into the clouds, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Jane, I remember. It's all true. Every impossible thing we imagined with Mary Poppins, it all happened. Now my heart is so light that I think I just might start feeding the birds and then go fly a kite with your head in a cloud. Only laughter's allowed and there's nowhere to go but up.